vision for a new year is what we're at here and where we've been sitting with uh, as we started last week. In the next couple weeks, I'm going to push more into the account itself. Uh, John 9 is, a, is one of the amaz- amazing chapters of the Bible because it, it goes way below just a, a surface kind of description of this healing. And it gets into this exchange that takes place between the blind man and the Pharisees. It's, it's very colorful. It's uh, got a lot of nuance to it and detail. And we're going to touch I- into that in the weeks ahead. But... This morning, I wanted to follow up with where we opened. I want to look at the first four verses again of John 9. And I want to have us think about what Jesus said. His disciples, if you recall, had noticed that he had taken a particular interest in a man who we're told had been born blind. And we're just going to read this. And that, that interest that Jesus appeared to have caused them to ask him a question. And in that question, Jesus gave a response that was a bit of a corrective word. It it certainly wasn't meant to um, sort of uh, come at them in an aggressive fashion, but rather to point out that they were off course in their line of reasoning. But then Jesus went on to declare something about who he was, but really also about what he felt passionate about. And I feel that that is an opportunity for you and I to live out of his words and to think about what it means for our own lives as well. As we move into this new year, which is still at this point a year of tremendous opportunity for us, we're not that far into it, that we cannot pursue certain things that the Lord would have for us to pursue. There's a momentum here, an opportunity here that doesn't really exist at other times in the year. And so by God's grace, I would like to encourage all of us, and I include myself, to Pursue this with a passion and seriousness. So we read John 9, verses 1 through 4. It says, Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. That is, he had never seen, as we noted last week, a ray of light. That Jesus saw a man born blind. The seeing of Jesus in contrast to the blindness of this man. And it says that Jesus paused in some level is implied to and he looked at him he may have passed him many many times but the disciples noticed how Jesus was looking at him and they asked a question it was very sincere from their end it seems almost ignorant from our perspective but in the paradigm of their day where they saw everything as having a cause and an effect it made complete sense to them and so they asked the question they said rabbi teacher notice verse 2 would you please tell us how did this man get like this? Who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? What, what was the reason for this, this tragic condition? And Jesus, in a way, brushed aside their question by saying, neither, you're, you're off course here. And then he made a statement that on the surface almost looks like uh, he had designed this moment just to, to perform a miracle, which was not the case. Jesus said, Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. No, I tell you, but the works of God, this should be revealed in him. In other words, not so much that he was made blind so that I could do a work in this moment, but that his blindness is an opportunity in this moment for the goodness of God to be displayed in an amazingly gracious way. It was as if he was saying, I don't want to get into the cause. What I want to get into right now is the fact that my father is moving me to address this man's 
his hurt, his wound, his, his disease, and I want to heal him. Now, then Jesus, we read verse 4, and we read this. He says, I must, he says, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day, for the night is coming when no one can work. I read that, and I read it just like I read verses 1 through 3. But I think when Jesus said it, it was more of an exclamation, a passionate declaration on his part about how in many ways this man's condition was a picture of the very condition of the world that he had come to address. That the blindness that, was, that had captured this man in many ways was reflective of a blindness that had captured this lost world that he said he had come to give his life for. He often talked in terms of, I have an hour, and he referred to that hour as the time when he was suffering, give his life away so that we might live. If we think about it, as Jesus said this, he, he said it, I believe strongly, with passion in his voice. I must work. The purpose of this moment now is to do something that God, that is a picture of everything that God has come to do. My Father has spoken to me, and I must do the works of him who sent me. While it is day, for the night will come, the time will come when I will not be able to do that. This isn't, there is something in this, right here in this spot. Listen, Jesus was cognizant. He was aware of his day. Some of the things that stand out in the verses immediately is this. Jesus was a worker. I must work. And he was also someone who was um, very aware of a limitation of time. And he saw that his hour was coming. But while it is day, I must work the works of him who sent me. Loved ones, I want to suggest, but maybe that's not a good enough word. I want to challenge us all to think about the fact that we have a limited day in which we can honor God with our lives. We have a limited time on this earth, on this side of eternity. We all have a day. And that day, we don't know its length. You know, in the natural sense, we're in a period of the year where in the wintertime, days are shorter. It takes longer for us to see the sun in the morning, and it goes down more quickly than in the summertime when the day gets lengthened out. Some of us, our days will be more like winter. Others of us will be like summer. But the fact is, every one of us will have a night. And I say that not to discourage us or to depress us, but to impress us with the need to live well with the day that we've been given and not to take it for granted nor waste it, nor to squander it. Uh, I believe the Lord has work for us to do in our day. And I don't know the length of that day. I don't know the length of it in my own life. I remember reading a preacher, uh, an old-time preacher, and he said something that maybe is because of, it's connected to what I have been given to do. But he says, I preach as though I would never preach again as a dying man to dying men. And that struck me. Because when we do, there are some things that we do that we, we just, we could do them, but we feel legitimately that we'll be able to do them again. But there is a kind of focus, a kind of intention that comes to a human being when we realize that this is the last time I'm going to do this. And the way we talk in that moment is very different than the way that we talk at other moments. I preach as though I would never preach again as a dying man to dying men. And there's so much in that. But it's a reminder that we all have been given an opportunity in the day 
to honor the Lord with in the day of our life. This is the time. This is the time to honor God today. This is the time today, 2009. This is the time to serve the Lord. This is the time to be a difference maker in the lives of our friends today. This is the time to be a giver of blessing in our family today. This is the time to use the resources God's blessed us with today. This is the time to serve him well today, to work well for him today, not not tomorrow. We don't know what tomorrow. This is our day. This is our time. So what I want to do in the minutes that we have left, and I'll put it under the category of where I left off last week, I said, here are some questions for a new year. Well, here are some additional questions for a new year. (laughs) All right? And I go back to verse 4. In verse 4, Jesus again said, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, because the night is coming when no one can work. Here's the first thing. It st- stood out to me. When I read it, and I've, I've heard it talked about before, I hear it. I must. He turns to his disciples, and he says, this is an opportunity for the goodness of God. And he says, I must. I must work the works of him. I must. Not, you know, I was thinking about it. Uh, it would be kind of good if I did. Once in a while, I might dabble with I must. And here's the deal. I believe we all must have a must. What is your must? Do we have one? What does that mean? What am I saying? Jesus had one. He had zeroed in on it. He knew where he was going. He knew why he was here. He knew the work that he was supposed to be doing. He knew when the Father was speaking, he needed to hear his voice. He was moving towards an hour. He was singularly connected to his purpose. There was no deviation from it, not as a robot, but as a committed human being, the Son of Man and the Son of God. He was in complete obedience. Now, there is this sense of him being deeply immersed in his purpose, and it compelled him in a passionate way. The closer we are connected to our must, the more powerful we are going to challenge ourselves to live our lives in an impactful fashion. And so I really want to to have us to think about that. I mean, what is our must? Why? And then following that up, why are we alive? Why are we here on this good earth? Why have we been given the privilege, the gift of life? We have breath in us in this very moment. We were allowed to exist. We were allowed to feel and love and think. And if we listen to Jesus, he's very clear about this. We are no mere cosmic accident going nowhere. He says, no, the the life of God is in you. Where do you think that yearning to love comes from? Where Where does that desire to create come from? Where does this need for relationship come from? Why are we like this? Jesus said it's very clear. The great purpose of a human being, and you've heard me say it before, why are we alive? Well, part of it is because Jesus said we are to do two things that are more, than, more important than anything else. And maybe in this period in which many people have, have been thinking a lot about what really matters in life because of the things that are happening in the global economy. And maybe in some small way, it's a good reminder for us because Jesus said, remember this always, that uh, the abundance you know, the purpose of a, a, a man's wealth will never, a man's true wealth will never, a person's true success can never be defined based on the abundance of the things they possess. He talked about how the greatest thing we can ever do in this life is to love God 
to really seek to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. And then to take a second step and build on that and to love others. He said, love your neighbor as you love yourself. To love people. And you hear me say, especially the people who God has connected us to in deep ways relationally. It's no good to go, and, and I'm saying it's no good. That's not a good thing. That's not a right way to say it. It will not have, we will undermine the good that we are doing in blessing people who are far from us if we poorly treat the people we are most closest to. It is not saying that these other things that we would do good to other people who we may know on a casual basis have no meaning. They have great meaning according to Jesus, especially if we connect them to the Lord in our own heart. They become a reflection of our love for him. But he says, don't ever forget, you start with your, what is a neighbor? It's the one who lives with you, next to you, integrated into our life. You know what that's telling us? In this period where so many people's definition of success is being challenged, Jesus says what true success is connected to is to God and people. And all of us can be wealthy. There is no reason why we cannot be more responsive to, Lord, to the Lord in times like these. In fact, maybe a time like this is a wonderful gift from God because it reminds us to think about the things that truly, truly matter. Jesus said, I must do the works of him who sent me. What, what is that? What does that mean? How can we do this? How can we, we be touched by those words in our own life? You know what? If we really believe what Jesus teaches us, then listen, there will be no area of our life that is unaffected. We will be compelled to bring God into every area of our life. What goes on inside of us in terms of our own development as a char- in our personal character, it will, it will show up in the way we work. It is to affect the way we love people, our, our, how we care for our family, how we keep our commitments, how we, how we keep our promises, how we, how we have, how, what kind of a friend we are, the things that we engage in, the, the things that we, pers- we will bring, nothing, if, nothing doesn't matter if anything matters at all. And Jesus says everything we do in this life matters. It does. It counts. It, it has some impact. Some very, so here's the, here's the third question. We, last week we said, what is the work he wants to do in us? Well, here's the question. What is the work he has for us to do? And I'm going to suggest that all of us would do well to think about that. And, I, and the reason I started last week with, what is the work he wants to do in us? What things does he want to open up in us? Because I realized that we'll never probably ever be able to really do well the things that he has for us to do if we are not firstly thinking about what is it he's trying to do in us because the two are very intertwined and we, we cannot neglect what's going on inside and expect something else to show up on the outside. In fact, I'm convinced that the words that come from our mouth and the things that we do reveal what's inside. Hence, we can know our true shape by what flows out of us and how strong we are when things are pulling at us to pull away from what we know is right in the eyes of the Lord. There's something revealing about the way we do things. And that is why the Lord cares about, listen, we all, Jesus said, I must do the work of what? Of him who sent me. He was very connected 
to the work that God had given him to do in this moment, in his day. So here's the question. What work does God have for us to do in our day, in this time? And we'll say, well, that's, that's just a big, big question. What about this, you hear me say, this season of our life? Let's narrow it down in the scope again. We often talk about the spring of life, the summer of life, the fall of life, the winter of life, or as the song writer put it, because it flowed better, winter, spring, summer, and fall, right? <laughs> but the idea, the idea is each one of us can think about in the season of our life, what would it look like to do the work that he has? What is the work he has for us to do in the season of our life? I want us to push into that. I was reading a book from a man by the name of Gordon Smith. I referred to this a few weeks ago. It was a book called Courage and Calling. He's talking about how we merge our faith with our vocation. And in this book, Smith talked about life. And he says, you know, there's, there are three places in life. He called them transition places. Three transition places in life where people more acutely are tuned in to their work and calling where we tend to think more about it and reflect more on it. He said the three main transition places of life, he said the first one has to do with that period between adolescence and early adulthood. And, he saw, and, and you know, certainly that is a real crucial time. I, in my household, uh, Phil, it had, in a, five years ago, this wouldn't have been as clear to me. But now it's, I see it in a slightly different way. I, I, you know, as your teenagers turn into young adults, as they start to leave that adolescence period. You know, my oldest son is 20 years old, and, and my youngest, we just celebrated, my oldest daughter's, you know, turned 19. Two of them are in college. They're thinking about these very things. In fact, my daughter came up to me, and she said, you know, oh, I hope I, I guess I have to, uh, I'm now <laughs> beyond the point of no return. Lord, forgive me. Uh, but she said, you know, will you pray for the right person that God has for me to marry? I said, yes. I will. I will do this. I will. <laughs> right? But you know, but I mean, it was a sincere question. But you see, when you're at this stage in life, you start thinking about, what, is, what am I supposed to do? Even when you're in school, you start thinking, well, wow, you know, soon I'm going I'm to have to make some decisions about my life path. What a career I'm going to get into. What about my major even sometimes? How do I focus on, I start to wrestle with responsibilities that maybe versus, you know, the freedom versus responsibility. And what things should I take onto my plate? What things should I take advantage of if they're offered to me? What is God calling me to do, to move into? You know, we often see that in this stage of life, we can make some mistakes and recover. But the further we go along into our day, the less recovery time we have, really. And I'm not suggesting that youthfulness, with all of its power and beauty, and it is, should be an excuse to sort of just live recklessly. I truly believe that the wisest among us, if you really want the wisdom, seek the face of God. Don't make mistakes that you'll regret if you can avoid them. Get good counsel in your life. Try to honor the Lord. Draw close to the Lord in his word. Be sincere in the way that you approach God. Pursue what he has to say. I will tell you the truth. It will pay dividends down the line. Blessing will flow in ways that could not be anticipated. Fruitfulness will be the result. Do it God's way. It is the right way. Jesus talked about how there is a, he will speak to us about the path of life. 
There are answers to the questions. It may take time for them to emerge. It may not always be a straight line. We may have to go a little bit here, a little bit there. But if we are honest with the Lord, sincere in our heart, the Lord will lead us in the path that we are to go. So he talked about how that is a, one of those periods in life where people start thinking about their career. What am I going to do? What am I going to use my life for? How does God want to use me at this time in my life? It's a, it's a time of observation, of thoughtfulness, of reflection. It, sometimes it's scary, too. So we're not sure what to do. I don't want to make a mistake. I want to do it the right. I want to, I, should, I, should I be this? I don't know the questions, right? A lot of questions. He said the second transition place where this happens a lot is that period between early adulthood and mid-adulthood, right? And at the end of which we often call midlife, a place I am getting more familiar with as we... <laughs> and someone said, well, how do you know when you're there? Well, when you ask the question, you've already answered it. <laughs> you know. Let's just say that. But let me also tell you that now, after a number of years being here in the pastorate, in the church, that I have watched people make grave errors in judgment at this period of life. I've watched people take something that was carefully built, not perfectly, but good, and throw it away like it was cheap. And I've watched people's hearts break in every direction, pain flow, deep pain, pain that will have generational consequence, that if it were not for the redemptive love of God, would deeply scar people. I wouldn't even say scar, because a scar implies a healing, but a wound never heals if it's not properly addressed. The Lord is able to take, the good news is the Lord can take even our mistakes and bring good from them. It has everything to do with it. When we say God is redemptive, we say he's redemptive, God redeems. He, Jesus gave his life so that we could be redeemed. We could be bought back, given life in place. He gives his life so that we might live. God can take a bad thing and make a good thing come from it. I know that. I believe it. I've seen it. I've watched it in my own life. I've seen it around me all the time. But I will tell you, it doesn't mean that people, <laughs> we got to be really careful about what we do in our restlessness. Because many good people in their restlessness become selfishly reckless. And the, the littered residue of it is just scattered like a shipwreck everywhere. May God help us not to be blind. Give me eyes to see, Lord. And give me strength to do what you want me to do. Jesus said, he that has my commands this is the per and keeps them, this is the person who truly loves me. A lot of people, a lot of us will say, I love Jesus. But what Jesus says, if we love him, will we do what he says? Lord, I want to love you. I want to do what you said. If you'll give me grace to do it, and I need grace sometimes, because I don't have my, the power to do it. But if you will fill me with your grace, your love, your goodness, your strength, I will, I will, I will to will. I want to honor you. See, this is a, great, a question for us to think about. What is the work he has for us? This early adulthood to mid-adulthood. And then, but Smith went on to say this. He said, then there's a third one. He says, it's mid-adulthood to the senior years. He says, this is another time where people actually reflect a lot. I, I, it's like, what are we going to do now? We have to adjust things. 
And what matters? What have I been living for? What about, what does God have for me ahead? You know, and it got me, and I was thinking about this, and I, was, I came across two articles this week. One of the articles was from something that's been happening a lot in the news lately. I was reading in uh, the Wednesday's Wall Street Journal about a man by the name of Adolf Merkel. He was a German billionaire. A lot of people compared him to uh, one of the great investors of America, Warren Buffett. And, and Adolf Merkel was a, a, a huge German billionaire who had an amazing reputation. And what happened was he lost a ton of money. And in his 70s, he decided to commit suicide. And the picture here is of, a, of the train and where he threw himself in front of and his car was probably... That is tragic. But then what was even more intense was on the column of the paper in the article, they listed different CEOs and leaders, people of wealth who are committing suicide in their latter years. And you know why? Because if your whole life is based upon what you have and what we temporarily possess, and when it's gone, what do you have to live for? The idea of a, well, see, Jesus said, don't think like that. That's not success. And then that got me reading something. I came across a different kind of article. It's from the sporting news, but it still <laughs> was a good article. But I was reading about, and now it's, the page is starting to get, I was reading about the life of a man. They were interviewing a man named John Wooden. Many of if you have a kind of a sports background, you know that John Wooden is, one, is an iconic figure in college basketball, considered probably the, one, really the greatest, I mean, his UCLA basketball teams won championship after championship. He had Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Bill Walden. Those names might mean something to some, but he had this amazing run. He's like a legendary coach. Maybe the greatest, some people's eyes, the greatest coach of any sport in America ever. John Wooden is 98 years old. He's a deep follower of Jesus. In this article, they were interviewing him. Talk about your older years. They were interviewing him, right? And Because uh, it really struck me when he was talking about his daughter, the 74-year-old. <laughs> oh, 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 whoa. You know? And so I, 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 he, 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 it was really actually tender. He said, he goes, yeah, you know, my daughter's been, her body's kind of, she's been going through some physical, I've been really wanting her to come and live with me. Right? You know? And, and so it was a very... And then the, the question... You could even tell that the, the writer even felt compelled to ask it. He, he said, uh, he says, do you worry for her? <laughs> yes, of course I do. She's still your little girl? Yes, she is. <laughs> Pausing to control his emotions. And I would like for her to live with me. It was very beautiful. And then the article went on and it started talking about what he missed most in life. And in fact, the, the cover of it was, I'm not afraid of death. I'm not going to, I'm not going to intentionally hurry it up, but, <laughs> but I'm not afraid. He talked about what he missed most. He said his wife and how, each, how many people have wanted him to move away from this home and he can't because it's connected to so many memories he has. And he, he talked about a room that he has. He's kept it. And it's the one thing he had. He says, I have the Lord. I have mementos, but I, I remember. And he was a very, you know, what, you know what was amazing to me? This is a man who did not build his life on accolades and accomplishments. He built his life on simple things like loving God and loving people well. He's bearing fruit even in his old age. I want to be like this. 
If the Lord gives us a long day, let's use it well. Let's use it well. There's a, the writer I referred to went on to talk about a quotation from a writer and a, a writer that had impressed him. And just I'll close with this. This is in your handouts from Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, and the, the writer of the book that I referred to talked about the transition. Smith talked about how this poem affected him. He says, there is a time in every man's education, or Emerson writes, and that would, today we would say every man or woman's education, when he arrives at the conviction that envy is ignorance. Listen, there's a point in our lives where we stop envying people. Stop c comparing ourselves with other people. They have this. They look like this. Look what they have. What I don't have. He says, there's a point you get in life where you, you, you come to that conviction that envy is just foolishness. The Bible says, be, godliness with contentment is tremendously profitable. He says, that imitation is suicide. That he must take himself for the better or worse as his portion. That, that though this wide universe is full of good, no kernel of nourishing corn can come to him but through his toil bestowed on that plot of ground which is given him to till. Now that might sound like, oh, it's, you know, whatever. that last phrase really hit me good. That plot of ground that has given us to till. I said, Lord, what is the ground that you've given me to till? That's where we're supposed to do our work. That's the place. God has a, we need, some of us, we need to stop comparing and stop complaining and we need to roll up our sleeves and we need to get to work. At, at loving God and loving people where we're at. And here's the question I'll leave us with. What really, what are the gifts that God wants us to take responsibility for? Because he's given each and every one of us gifts to contribute with for his goodness and glory. For he has people for us to touch, words for us to say, prayers for us to give, blessings for us to be, service for us to render. The Lord has something. He, let me see. The Lord is going to want to see some king, kingdom soil underneath our fingernails. What is the work? And then pour your heart into it. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how many people notice. But it, it's, if, if God is in it, if he's putting your heart to do it, I must do the work of him who sent me. That's the spirit of our leader. Lord Jesus, I pray that as we are here in this second week of January, that we would not be weary in well-doing, for in due time we shall reap if we faint not. That's what your word teaches us, Lord. I pray that you would take this time in our culture, in our, in our world, that we, you've allowed us to live in, and I pray that we would not squander or treat in a casual fashion this day that you've given us, Lord, but that we will seek to live well for you, that we will seek to live closer to you, that we will seek to have your words planted in our heart deeply so that when we are tempted to pull away and go off track, Lord, your word and the people you've placed around us will be able to speak life to us so that we will be a people of blessing. I pray that some of us, Lord, would take great seriousness about what this year, year's opportunity presents us, that 2,000 a year could be a tremendous year of growth for us, 
that we can begin to pursue you and draw closer to you. Listen for, learn how to listen for your voice, Lord. Learn how to continue to be a good worker for the King, even as you, Lord, showed us how to work. I pray that you fill us with passion. You are not aloof. You are not disconnected from life. You are fully engaged. But you are so committed to doing the Father's will. I pray you would stir us, Lord, to give our life for the best things. Challenge how we're living. Challenge what we're building. Think about it, Lord. Think about what it means to live well, love well, build well. I pray for that. I pray that you bless our closing song, Lord, which reminds us to have eyes to see all the needs that are around us, that we can be a difference maker for you and in some small good way. I pray for your blessing. Bless our time of giving as we honor you there as well. Bless this church, Lord. Help us to love you well and love people. In Jesus' name, amen, God. 